Welcome to our third and final talk in this series, Rush Hour Lecture Series with Professor Rana Mitter. We have taken a real intellectual journey over the course of these lectures, and the record number of attendees is a testament to both Rana's scholarship and skill in making complex topics accessible to a wide audience. We began by discussing the continuities and discontinuities throughout East Asia's past century, and then explore the road of emotion between politics and publics. And now today in the final lecture in the series, we will explore how states construct a sense of purpose. How do states narrate their stories and aspirations and explain why citizens should join together in service of their common goal? How do states change their sense of purpose? And what happens when this is lacking from a national narrative? I look forward to hearing Rana's approach in tackling these important questions. Today, we are also fortunate to be joined by our discussant, Professor Arunab Ghosh. Arunab is Associate Professor of History here at Harvard, where he researches and teaches on the social and economic history of modern China. He earned his PhD from Columbia University, and he joined the History Department from the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies, where he was an academy scholar. His first book, which was, which was just uh, published last year, Making It Count, Statistics and State Crafts in the Early People's Republic of China, offers fascinating insights into the central role of statistics and expertise in the PRC's early state building efforts. His latest project looks at a history of dam and reservoir building in China and the history of networks of scientific exchange between China and India. Before we start, I would like to say that it has been a real privilege for me to hold this year's Rush Hour Lecture Series as Interim Director of the Fairbank Center, and especially to host a friend and former colleague from my time of, uh, at Oxford. As I mentioned in my previous remarks, a silver lining of this year's dreadful pandemic has been that it has allowed us to improve both speakers and audience from around the world. For those of you watching from outside Cambridge and Boston, I do hope you will continue to join us in future events as we try to find ways to continue including you after we return to semblance of norm normality post lockdown. Rana's lecture are but just one example of the research we support here at the Fairbank Center. We pride ourselves on supporting our scholars' freedom to explore a huge variety of topics relating to China, as well as their independence to explore this research beyond restrictions or pressures from many institutions or government. This week, we learned that China has sanctioned on scholars in Europe and the United Kingdom over the roads in shining a light on human rights issues in Xinjiang. As the late Professor Ezra Vogel argued in multiple occasions, dialogue fosters understanding and the open exchange of people and ideas between China and the world is of mutual benefit. In times of high tensions, open exchange is needed to deepen our shared comprehension of one another and to help improve ties across political borders. The Fairbank Center fully intends to continue our support for open scholarly exchange based on respect and scholarly integrity. 
Lectures like the one that we're about to hear today highlight the power of open exchange in helping us to better understand China and East Asia. Before I turn over to Rana, I just want to remind the um, participants that when you have questions, please type them into the Q&A chat box and we will come to that towards the end of the lecture. And without further ado, I would like to turn this over to Rana. So Rana, once again, welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Winnie, for that welcome. And thank you to everyone who has joined us today from all around the world. Could I please um, take a moment to um, add to Winnie's comment by making a brief comment of my own? And I'd like specifically to express my support for Professor Joanne Smith-Finley of Newcastle University here in the United Kingdom, which is where I'm speaking to you from. Uh, she is one of those scholars who's been sanctioned by the Chinese government purely for her academic work. And it provides a deeply worrying precedent that academic freedom of scholars in the Western world, indeed anywhere, but certainly in our uh, part of the world, can invite retaliation merely because of what it says. I, like many on this call, have numerous friends in Chinese academia whose work makes frequent and severe criticisms of the Western world, sometimes justifiably, sometimes in my opinion, not so much, but I recognize my academic friends' freedom in China to have a different view from my own. And I would be deeply concerned, as I think we all would, if any Western government tried to sanction Chinese scholars for expressing their honestly held views. And that's why I find it so troubling that any Western scholar or thinker of whom Dr. Smith Finley is just, uh, just one, um, but also, of course, we know that various other scholars, think tankers, politicians and others have been caught in this particular net. And I think we should all be concerned that they should be made vulnerable in this way. And as the Reichshauer lectures, which I'm honored to have given this year, are a notable academic event in the world of East Asian studies in the West, I do feel it's important to note that recent events where the values embodied in these lectures are under threat. That is the free and open study, analysis and discussion of East Asia. And furthermore, discussion where East Asia is a participant, not just a subject of inquiry. And moves like this recent move of sanctioning will make it harder for us to do what we all want to do, which is to make sure that China and Japan and Korea and many other parts of the region are part of our discussion, not something that we simply look at from a distance because we are in some way prevented from accessing it and talking to it. That I think will be the worst outcome for us all. So on that note, let me turn, if I may, to the third of the 2021 Reichauer lectures that, as I say, I feel very privileged to be able to give. And the title I've given to this one is A Sense of Purpose. But within that context, I want to start, if I may, with perhaps an even slightly more provocative question. And the starting question is, what is China for? And I want to place that question at the heart of the lecture and explain why I think it might provide a useful entry point to a wider discussion. And I do that because although I'm speaking to you from the UK, I'm aware that the majority of people on this call are in the United States. And I'm gonna start with another possibly even more controversial statement, or maybe not, which is that America is an unusual country. Now it is possible that you don't actually need me to tell you that, but I say so partly because of a slight um, dichotomy, which is that many Americans frequently say something along those lines. You know, they talk about how special, how unusual the country is. 
and yet I think fail to see how spectacularly unusual or indeed anomalous the country is as seen from outside. In other words, America often wants to be seen as a country that's both exceptional and as normative. And to explain what I mean by that, think about the many times that you've heard a version of one of the following statements. America is an idea. America is a project. America is a journey. Now, this tendency is not absent from other Western societies. And I don't see in principle why we shouldn't say that Lithuania is an idea or that Denmark is a journey, hopefully a journey in which particularly delicious pastries may be involved. France, I would say that perhaps of the major Western powers is most inclined towards such thinking. And the British sense of project is not hard to detect either, even though that project is sometimes static rather than dynamic. The, the current uh, conceptualization of global Britain about post-Brexit Britain, which I've mentioned before, doesn't seem to say so much about where Britain is going as to where it is placed. But what about East Asia? Is Japan a project? Is it an idea? Is it a journey? Is Korea divided or united any of those things? And above all, in the present moment, is China? Or to put it another way, it's a meaningful question, at least in some contexts, to ask that particular query, to put that particular query, what is America for? What is its purpose? Its advocates and critics alike both think that that is a question that's at least worth asking, even if for some people the answer is immensely positive, and I've always been an immense fan and supporter of the United States, but for others, the answer is, to be honest, a negative one. But can we even ask the question, what is China for? Well, I just did, so I guess we can ask it. But behind that, the wider idea is, of course, is there a purpose behind the phenomenon that we all know about, which is China's continuing rise? And we've heard a great deal, not least in the most recent days, even since the last lecture a week ago, about China's sense of confidence, uh, China's sense in recent years that it is able to act without a sense of having to apologize or trim its sails because of the actions or desires of others. And you can see that, I'm afraid, with the recent sanction um, uh, burst on European and British uh, politicians and scholars that we've just mentioned. So confidence has become a word of the moment, but confidence towards what end? Well, in the first two lectures, I talked about two concepts, newness and emotion, and their place in what I see as the trajectory of the shaping of East Asia. And um, in that context, I want to try and complete a loop today, not sealing a loop shut by any means, I, uh, I have to say, but suggesting that there is a bringing together of these factors that has been detectable in modern East Asia over the past century. And a set of factors that shapes its most prominent actor, China, in the present day. And that third concept I want to bring forward is purpose. The idea that there is a reason for a particular state and society to exist and interact in the world beyond its own self-reproduction. Is there a meaning to China and indeed to Japan in the world? And how do meaning and morality interact? Because to flag ahead, I'm gonna suggest that those two factors I think come together quite strongly in that sense of project. And I draw somewhat on the classic idea by the political scientist Roger Smith in his book, Stories of Peoplehood, 
and his argument about what he calls ethically constitutive stories as a way of bringing a narrative together about the identity that brings together a people, can be a nation, can go beyond that, but certainly nations tend to do it. And I want to use that idea of Roger Smith to talk about how these countries not just think about themselves internally, but how they project themselves to the world. Because I think this question, what is China for? And indeed, what is Japan for? Is a set of questions that has more valency than perhaps you might think, not just now, but actually over the past century, and even before that, as East Asia has come into and redefined modernity. So let's start briefly in the pre-modern era. I'm just gonna just adjust my screen. Yep, good. Let's start in the pre-modern era. The Chinese world order was one where moral influence, the idea of the good life as defined by Confucian norms, gave a purpose to the Chinese state in the Sinosphere, to use that uh, word, which I know that Joshua Fogel used with great skill in an earlier iteration of these Reichshauer lectures and then turned into a, a wonderful book. Now, I think that what we're talking about there is a project that goes beyond simple political influence. Of course, political influence is there, but the idea of the Confucian good life, if you want to put it that way, emanating from pre-modern China, I think is something that goes beyond just politics. And all of the ideas that are associated with that intellectual, ethical, political repertoire were indigenized in a whole range of ways elsewhere in the region, in Korea, in Japan, in Vietnam. The presence of some meaningful idea of China or the cynic, S-I-N-I-C, cynic entity, it was a term that, as you know, has been turning up in a variety of discussions of the pre-modern uh, Chinese world, that this was inculcated in understandings of order and morality in the region. And even when the political entity that, well, I'm gonna call it China, so apologies if that in some ways seems uh, a little bit retro, but I think it's, 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 it's the easiest way to understand what we're talking about here. The political entity that we think of as China, even when it was split or under the rule of non-ethnic Chinese rulers, the purpose of China being in the world and being China in the world, two related but not identical concepts, was I think understood by people well outside the political realm of what would have traditionally been regarded as Chinese rule. And again, to mention another previous Reichshauer lecturer, Timothy Brook, uh, he addresses his, this question very interestingly in his recent book uh, about the idea of the great straits, Daikoku uh, or Daguo. Now, with that in mind, with that pre-modern moral and ethical centrality of Confucian Chinese norms to the Sinosphere at least, we then get an understanding of how it decenters in the late 19th and early 20th century, not just in terms of decentering of China as that ethical and Confucian center, but also, of course, the shift to Japan. And in that period, late 19th, early 20th century, up to mid 20th century, perhaps, it's worth asking the question, what was Japan for? What was the purpose of Japan in the world? And I would suggest, that up to the mid 20th century, and I mean the post-war period as well, Japan became, both before and after the war, before and after 1945, an exemplar of a term I'm going to sort of slightly um, uh, adapt from uh, the theorist uh, Giorgio Agamben. Uh, I'm sure many of you will be aware of his adaptation of the um, 
term of Carl Schmidt, the state of exception, uh, the, I think, Aufnahmezustand in, in, in German, and the idea, as Agamben has it, of the idea of the state of exception, uh, state of exemption. I'm going to put a slight wordplay on the different uses of the word state, which um, don't uh, uh, quite translate in the same way in, in, in German or indeed Italian, and instead talk about this as Japan as a nation state of exception. In other words, a case that defines difference. Okay, nation state of exception. Exception to what? Well, I think the difference with the pre-modern lies in the fact that the universe or the circuit of knowledge within which China was acknowledged even beyond its own political borders to be a political and ethical project with morality and with purpose. I think that world was destroyed by the emergence of industrial modernity, the story we all know from the mid to late 19th century. All of the political projects that stretched across borders, not just the Confucian project, if you want to call it that, had to redefine themselves in the context of a wider global norm. In other words, the Sinosphere, huge, but essentially regional and porous, but relatively self-contained, had to give way to a globe and a globe uh, defined by a system of thought, which allowed essentially no borders. So in the era of high industrial capitalism, and modernity, Japan at that point served as an exemplar of a different version of the existing order, a variation on a theme. The idea that even the universal, supposedly universal, could be shaped in ways that gave it cultural specificity and a different sort of political purpose. So from the early 20th century, one manifestation of that would be that all of the modern empires of the early 20th century, and here I mean industrialized um, uh, um, empire, all of them were Western, British, French, American, German, except of course for that of Japan. And this is the moment where I hope I might use the screen share effectively. Just share screen. So let me, uh, yes, very good. So here we have um, a uh, rather nice uh, tint of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905. And as is well known, but worth repeating, this provides the ambiguous source of support that other Asians could both condemn and draw on in terms of their own political projects. So uh, young Nehru, hearing about the Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese War, famously felt pride about an Asian victory over Europeans, rather than, it would seem, feeling empathy for the Chinese, on whose territory this unfailingly imperialist war actually took place. I always think that it is um, an irony, and not necessarily a very pleasant one, that the Russo-Japanese War was in fact mostly fought, of course, on the territory of a third country, China, but that is rarely acknowledged in the terminology. Now, this ambiguity was neither complete nor could it last forever. And uh, two decades later, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, the great Bengali intellectual uh, poet and artist who greatly admired Japan and was likewise hugely admired in Japan in a way that he wasn't so much in, in, in China, finally broke with his relationship with, his, with the Japanese and with his uh, friends there by declaring that the Japanese empire was in the end built on, quotes, a tower of skulls. 
Nonetheless, the Japanese project, the political project of the early 20th century, was based in a whole variety of ideas that had to do with not just the politics, but also the wider meaning of Japan in the world. And I think this was part of the project of philosophers we mentioned previously, such as Nishida Kitaro, and those who were involved in the whole Chokoku no Kindai, the overcoming of modernity in the mid 20th century. I think that debate can be seen as many things, but certainly as a debate about the purpose of Japan in the world. Many of the philosophers who took part in that Kyoto conference uh, saw modernity as an obstacle. That is, I think, a profound difference with China, at least at the time, where Chinese of all political persuasions, uh, the Guomindang nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the communists under Mao Zedong, and actually, more controversially perhaps, even Wang Jingwei's collaborators with Japan during the wartime years, uh, all of them saw modernity as something to achieve, certainly shaped into a new Chinese or Asian mode, but not to be overcome, but rather to be embraced. And even um, uh, Wang Jingwei's collaborators with Japan never really seem to share in their ideology that kind of attachment to primordial irrationality that marked many of the classic Japanese ultra-nationalist texts of the time, uh, such as the political text uh, Kokutai no Hongi, which was uh, very much at, at the center of that kind of um, reaction against uh, bureaucratic rational modernity at that time. You could argue that the Japanese project of pan-Asianism did provide a different sort of philosophical purpose for Japan, which genuinely had resonance amongst non-Japanese Asians who had few other examples to turn to, and in some cases were very inspired by pan-Asianism. But again, that project had also by the 1930s become primarily about empire, and it quickly lost its sheen amongst many, if not all, of the other Asians in the region. Certainly it had little uh, purchase uh, amongst Chinese by that stage. To continue with a few minutes for with the Japan story, I think that the post-war era after 1945 was necessarily different. Japan, I think, did develop a sense of purpose. The growth of GDP almost as a sort of national form of economistic religion, you might say, but its pre-war sense of expansion and adventurism had essentially forced it to turn away in the post-war away from the idea of becoming an ex explicit exemplar. Nonetheless, despite Japan's own more relatively modest self-presentation during the post-war period, the idea of this uh, idea of a non-Western modernity surrounding Japan still became very powerful during much of the Cold War, not least because again, there were very few other examples, if any, in the developed world of just what such a concept might mean. This does not mean either before or after the war that non-Western modernity was not available, but many of the areas where it was exercised in the post-war, and Brazil comes to mind as uh, one particular example of that, these were not for good or ill regarded as being part of the developed world by the 1960s and 70s, Japan evidently was. It was also part of a conception of uh, modernity that assumed that democracy was a core element. And in this context, the Soviet Union, which certainly regarded itself as being very modern, could only be seen by others or by the democratic world as a sort of deformed modernity in that context, even if it was indubitably not Western. And once again, Japan therefore became a sort of nation state of exception, even though it did not declare itself to be so. And in fact, at times during that period, certainly in the 1960s through to the 90s, 
almost did the opposite by pursuing ideas such as the uh, concept of Nihonjinron, this um, kind of uh, philosophically informed nativist concept, uh, which argued that there's something exceptional about Japan that simply couldn't be reproduced um, uh, elsewhere, uh, a culture, as you might say, with Japanese characteristics. But what, whatever you say about uh, Nihonjinron, it certainly wasn't an idea that could be transmitted beyond Japan's borders. It was very much about the specificity of Japan. China, in contrast, I think had a very different trajectory during much of the 20th century. First of all, this idea of purpose, I think is harder to find in the China of the early 20th century, simply because the key question at that point was not what is China for? What does it mean to be China in the world? But will China survive? Or is it going to be basically split up and destroyed? I think that changed by the Mao era, and there is a much clearer sense of purpose in the China of the high, <coughs> excuse me, of the high Maoist period, the 1950s, 60s, 70s, particularly the Mao who uh, conceptualized the idea of the three worlds. And as the historian Julia Lovell's brilliant book on Maoism has shown, Global Maoism, there was plenty of global interpretation of Mao's China as a state, absolutely a state with purpose, particularly during the late Cold War, when other political conceptions, both West and East, seemed at the very best to be somewhat sterile. And it mattered a great deal to many decision makers. Uh, one example would be uh, President Julius Nyerere of Tanzania. Uh, many decision makers in the Global South who transplanted many of these Maoist ideas into their own context. So for Tanzania, it was the idea of Ujamaa. And it was the fact that China was a non-Western state that mattered as part of the applicability of its ideas, just as Japan had mattered for the same reason to the young Nehru in the early 20th century. And I don't think it's fanciful to see a connection between the kind of colonial intellectual who becomes a nationalist liberation leader of Nehru in the early 20th century and Nyerere in the late 20th century. In fact, they're both essentially similar generations. So that leads to the question in our own era, when the answer to the question, what is Japan for, no longer has a very, very clear answer, not least because Japan itself doesn't seem to always know exactly what the answer to that question is. And I address some aspects of where that might be in the first two lectures. The answer even to that question of what is America for? Well, all of us could think of answers to that, but perhaps, perhaps, perhaps the answer is a bit more hazy than it was either in 1945 or even perhaps in 1990. So in that context, can we ask the question more clearly, what is China for? And perhaps who is China for? Because I think that China today is in no doubt that it has a global purpose, not just a domestic one, or even a regional one in Asia, although it undoubtedly does have that. Now, I want to be careful and precise, as I can be, about what I say here, because often this is translated slightly carelessly into ideas such as, well, that means that China is on a project of global domination. Uh, ideas, that idea is certainly one that China is at pains to deny, and which outsiders counter by pointing to efforts such as its desire to control international norms. They say, well, if China doesn't want to control the world, why is it so keen to control telecoms or uh, international uh, weights and measures or uh, the uh, rules of the sea, uh, the law of the sea? 
But the question I want to ask again today is a different one. It's not, does China want to be immensely more powerful in the world? I think, by the way, the answer to that question is obviously yes, as any survey of its own idea of so-called comprehensive national power, Zonghe Guoli, would show. But rather the question of, does China have a purpose in doing so? Because sometimes I think the Chinese desire to increase its power is regarded as simply being a sort of purely realist idea of power for its own sake. And indeed, there's a perfectly valid argument in that way, but I propose a different way of looking at it today. And I propose to do that by diving further into that question of what is the point of China in the world? Is China the new nation state of exception, taking over that title, which admittedly I've only just formulated, from Japan? And at this point, in the early 20th century, 21st century, sorry, in the year 2021, is that China's purpose in the world to be a new nation state of exception that proves a new sort of rule? To what extent, to what question, in other words, is China the answer? And is it an instrumental answer, in other words, a purely realist answer, or is it a more conceptual one? Is China there to help us to get what we want? Or can China be a model to which we aspire? Or instead, is it purely about the actualization of a set of goals that in the end are purely about what China wants? Well, I want to try and answer those questions at the end, but just to make sure you don't log off before the end of the lecture, I hope. I want to turn for a few more minutes to history. And I want to return to the mid 20th century, not to Japan this time, but to China, and suggest that there was a powerful moment where some of the thinkers that I've addressed in earlier lectures, and I'm going to come back to, in that liminal, but I think half forgotten moment in 1945 and the years immediately afterwards, but before 1949, when Japan lay in ruins and China was on the cusp of global influence in terms of its position in the world, but also a civil war that would undermine everything that that, that put together. When the question was, I think, was, fir was first asked, what is China for in the new world? Now, there was no clear single moment when the question switched from, will China survive? The question of the early 20th century to what is China for? Which, as I'm gonna suggest, is perhaps more the question of the second half of the 20th century and, and beyond. But you can see the shape of the second question emerge from the remnants of the first. And the consideration by thinkers of the era started with China but then went on, and this is where I think it's important for China's place in the world, to expand the aim of China's self-improvement um, being a case study for its wider applicability elsewhere in the world. And I turn back to the thinker Jiang Tingfu, I've mentioned a couple of times before, historian, teacher of John K. Fairbank, and also a major nationalist administrator in the immediate late wartime and post-war years. Now, Jiang Tingfu was absolutely dedicated to the idea of scientific change as part of the modernization of China, talking about natural science and mechanized agriculture in particular, as two particular areas that he thought were particularly important. He argued that at the, quote, pitiful level of modernization that he thought China was at, even by the wartime years of the 1930s, that China needed more students and science. And in a quote from an essay uh, from that year, from 1938, uh, Jiang Tingfu said, in agriculture, you could say that there's no relationship between China's farmers and modern science. In government, there is only a minority at the top uh, of some of the agencies who have even a kind of veneer skin of modernity, uh, end quote. 
And Jiang Tingfu was particularly concerned about the scholar official class and what he saw as its continuing grip on the culture. Uh, he adds, the number of people in China taking science seriously increases day by day, but our modernization is still very limited. And in contrast, he observed, although the Kerju, the traditional examination system, had been abolished several decades previously, literary studies were still at the heart of China's educational system in a way that he found problematic. Now, Jiang Tifu and his contemporary, the journalist Zhou Tafen, who I also mentioned uh, last time, um, found themselves um, during this time grappling with a whole variety of different political frameworks, internationalism, Marxism, Deweyan, liberalism during that period. And while I don't want to go into the precise details of exactly who thought what, when, but bearing in mind that both men changed their intellectual trajectories, Jiang Tingfu started off as a Marxian in some senses, ended up essentially as a liberal. Zoltafen started off as a liberal and ended up as a, a Marxist during this period. But I point out that the whole idea of national purpose, the idea of shaping what the purpose of a country is in the world through the ideas of its elites then um, imposed onto politics are of course shaped by the intellectual constructs of those people who thought about the nation. And it matters therefore that Yang Tingfu was a Marxian turned social democrat and Cold War liberal, just as it matters that in the present day, Wang Huning, top, uh, top level of the Politburo of course, and the other makers of today's so-called uh, Zhong Guomeng, the China dream, are Marxist-Leninists drawing on Confucian tropes with a profound distrust of liberalism as a central intellectual element of their makeup. So when Jiang Tingfu had written in the late 1930s, China was of course still a country with hugely compromised sovereignty. The country was at best in those days a second tier member of the League of Nations and its wider influence was sometimes notable through uh, prominent national voices such as uh, the diplomat Wellington Koo, but in general, not perhaps uh, um, at the level that a country the size of China might have expected. A decade later, in 1946, China found itself taking up, as in this ceremony here, the only uh, one of only five permanent seats at the newly formed United Nations and exercised significant moral power as a mentor to other post-colonial nations. In 1946, in that moment where it became part of the new UN structure, China also entered the first, but not the last iteration of this idea of it becoming East Asia's nation state of exception. And at this moment, 1946, it was able to do so because although it was weak, battered, almost beyond endurance at the end of the war, it was also finally sovereign. With the exception of Thailand, this wasn't really true of any other Asian state at the moment that the signing uh, was taking place in 1945 and 1946. Japan, of course, was under occupation. Many other states were actually going back into Western colonial um, uh, possession, having been part of Japan's empire, so uh, Malaya, Singapore, and so forth, uh, Vietnam, and others such as Korea were going into a form of UN trusteeship. India would, of course, soon be independent a year later, but even then, and indeed now, UN, uh, sorry, China would not become, sorry, India would not become a UN Security Council member. The entry of China, in other words, into this world of global governance, but also global mentorship, you might say, is a moment that today 
China repeatedly seeks to revisit. Many of you will have heard people like Foreign Minister Wang Yi talk at public uh, conferences about how important it was that China was the first signatory of the UN Charter in 1945. China, in other words, defining itself today by its founder status at the UN, and in other words, seeing its entry into global standing coming not just from one magic year, 1949, the year of the establishment of the PRC, but actually even before that emerged, while the Kuomintang was still in power in 1945. And although China's standing had grown between 1937 and 45 up to this moment where it became uh, a prominent member of the United Nations, it also meant that attention paid to its system of government became more prominent as well. And by the way, I flagged this up in the 1940s because of course I'm sure you can see that I'm indicating parallels with the present moment where one of the many areas, not the only one, one of the many areas why China is such a controversial actor in the present uh, era is not just because of what China does abroad, but what its system of government does and what it is at home as well. So in that sense, the rows and controversy over that aspect of today's China are nothing new. Now, the choices that Jiang Tingfu had debated before the war between fascism, communism and liberalism had shrunk in number by 1946 Fascism, of course, was no longer relevant, but the moral weight that the United States, as the leading liberal power in the world at that stage, attached at least nominally to a liberal domestic and international order, meant that China, at least in some ways, had to think about how to fit into the order which America sought to create in its part of Europe and Asia. And in that sense, Jiang's own experience, including a period as uh, the Chinese ambassador to the Soviet Union, but also a period in the US when he'd been impressed by aspects of the New Deal, such as the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, had made him much more enthusiastic about a liberal alternative for China, which could then enable China to reshape itself in its presentation to the world. And he wrote about this in a long essay in 1947 titled Political Liberalism and Economic Liberalism, which engaged in particular with tensions between the two concepts. Um, a lot of the data that Jiang drew on, uh, the legacies of revolution in Russia, Italy, Turkey, Germany, and so forth in the early 20th century were quite similar to um, what he'd been talking about in the 20s and 30s, but he drew a significantly different conclusion uh, from them, talking about the way in which China and Japan, which had come up with their own cultural system, had nonetheless set up constitutions and planned to widen people's freedom and the scope of political assemblies. So in that sense, culture being different, but the norms into which they were being um, instituted in some ways are very recognizable and in some ways recognizably uh, liberal. And in this model, the establishment of a new Chinese constitution in that year, in 1947, was one part of that reversion to a liberal norm that certainly Jiang Tingfu was hoping for, in which the long dashed hopes of so many Chinese thinkers for a stable Chinese Republic after 1911 would finally, finally be achieved. He was not blind to the difficulties of liberalism. Uh, Jiang wrote with a, an understanding of why the economic order of the pre-World War I world had failed in the eyes of so many. He pointed out that under economic liberalism, quote, factories suddenly close, mines suddenly shut down, tilled and tillable land suddenly turns into wasteland. At the same time, millions of workers suddenly lose their job. This cycle of economic rise and fall, this contradiction of tools of production becoming obsolete, count, countless workers becoming unemployed, 
as he pointed out and it's criticized, this is why liberalism has fundamental problems that are very, very hard to overcome. And he says this critique is not entirely groundless and argues that a nation can receive political freedom, but at the same time encounter economic oppression. Do you want to pause for a moment there? Because while Jiang Tingfu by this stage was absolutely a liberal, once again, once again, you can see the shadows of many of the arguments put forward by today's China, a very non-liberal China, in terms of the difference between economic freedoms, liberal political freedoms, and how they may play off against one another. So Jiang Tingfu was very prophetic when it came to these um, sorts of, uh, of discussions, I would say. But he does say very clearly what his own position is. He says, liberalism is, this is Jiang Tingfu in 47, liberalism is not a smooth path, he says. It cannot give us a once and for all plan. But if we do follow the path of liberalism, can we really follow authoritarianism and find paradise? So having advocated authoritarianism as a kind of strongman argument that you needed to uh, crack down first, get economic growth, and then free up later, by the late 1940s, he said, actually, no, the two go hand in hand. And in service of this um, argument, he says, Sun Yat-sen's revolution, FDR's new deal, they were posited on ruling the empire to make the country calm. They were not just about people making a profit. Um, so uh, I'm very enchanted by this idea of Jiang Tifu arguing that the New Deal was in fact about making the empire calm and one can sort of see what he, what he means in that, uh, in that case. In other words, this idea of ruling the empire to make the country calm and this comparison with the United States, I think provides one of the first signs that Jiang Tifu wanted to put into the arena about the idea of a new settlement in China domestically to become a salvo more broadly about what the state or empire, if you want to use his term, Tianxia, was actually for. And Jiang linked his discussion of the New Deal, and in particular his admiration for the Tennessee Valley Authority project, to his pre-war arguments about modernization. And Jiang argued that Sun Yat-sen had promoted the three people's principles of nationalism, popular rights, and people's livelihood simultaneously because by doing that, he would be better placed to shorten the historical process of modernization. In other words, he was using Sun Yat-sen as his argument that you don't go for economic growth first and then freedoms. You have to have them all together. And now Jiang Tingfu suggested the enterprises that engineers are carrying out in China have the characteristic of shortening that history somewhat. And then adds, I think, the important line from his point of view. So what we can do on the scientific systems and mechanics front we also ought to be able to do on the morality front. In other words, his idea of the ethical exemplar being put forward, the moral exemplar, is intimately linked to the economic case. The two are not separate in his mind. This is not quite Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country, to uh, uh, quote Lenin, but in Jiang Tingfu's eyes, a Chinese New Deal plus electrification of the whole country, which to many liberals, I think perhaps sounds like a more attractive sort of, uh, of, of, of option. And you remember that last week, you may remember, I mentioned that even in the middle of the war, Jiang Tingfu had talked about psychological reform as being a really important part of the, um, uh, the idea that he wanted to, uh, to, to put forward. And just one more um, quote uh, here, I think, that says something about the idea that Jiang Tingfu really did believe that reform of China in both scientific industrial progress and a moral ethical outlook was going to be an exemplar, not just for China itself, but for the wider world, 
is something that he says about that link between economics and morality in a way that I think someone like Adam Smith would actually have recognized very well. So Zhang Tingfu says the following um, in 1947, modern scholars of economics have become more optimistic overall about the future of the world economy. They feel that with modern science, the production capacity and standards of living of the whole world can be greatly raised. And then he says, they believe that one country's poverty leads directly to disaster in other countries. To put it the other way, one country's prosperity can directly affect the benefit felt by another country. Economically, this is a world of mutual coexistence and mutual prosperity. If every country's foreign policy was decided by economic factors, then international cooperation would be smoothly realized. Now, we could pick apart, we won't do it now, but we could pick apart you know, the difficulties with that statement and also whether frankly this was a hopelessly optimistic way to look at the world when you look at the reality of 1947. But conceptually, I think it's a really important set of ideas from a prominent thinker who was also a major politician of the period as to why China's self-improvement might meaningfully be regarded as part of a wider global ethical project as well as an economic project that came from a type of non-Western modernization. And before we return to the present day, which we will in a minute, I think that understanding this as the first salvo of China as a state with a purpose in changing order within its own borders, but also as an exemplar for others beyond its borders, was a really important part of the thinking that briefly, but I think significantly, existed in China at that time, particularly the moment when Japan's miraculous post-war rise, which we now know about, was not at all obvious, any more than I should say was South Korea. South Korea's trajectory by the 1970s, 80s and 90s was not remotely visible in 1945, a year when I think Korea and Japan were competing, to which looked most devastated. And I should say that that would occur in terms of some of the early participation of this first incarnation of uh, China and the UN in organizations like ICAFI, the Economic Commission for Asia and the Far East, which had its first meeting in Shanghai, although it had to move later years to Bangkok because of China's exclusion from the UN after 1949. So as we become to begin to come to the end both of this lecture and the lecture series, let me turn back near the end to pull together threads where we began. As you may remember here with Xi Jinping and the 19th Party Congress. And once again, I want to give you a quote from Daniel Tobin's very fine translation of his Party Congress speech. And the quote that I want to give you uh, in Tobin's translation is, it means that scientific, so she is talking about, uh, you know, what the new era, the new era that we started with in the lecture about newness, what the new era actually means. And she says, it means that scientific socialism is full of vitality in 21st century China. that The banner of socialism with Chinese characteristics is now flying high and proud for all to see. It means that the path, the theory, the system, and the culture of socialism with Chinese characteristics have kept developing, blazing a new trail for the other developing countries to achieve modernization. It offers a new option for other countries and nations who want to speed up their development while preserving their independence. And it offers Chinese wisdom and a Chinese approach to solving the problems facing mankind." End quote. So what does this statement and China's sense of Zixin, its confidence in the wider world, really mean? 
Again, going back to the question at the beginning, what kind of state is China today? What is it for? Is it a new empire? Is it a revolutionary state? Or, as I suggested, is it a nation state of exception? Well, just picking up a theme briefly that I mentioned in the first lecture, I think there is some weight to the argument that China is an undeclared revolutionary state, although I think it refuses to declare it to itself as well as to the rest of the world. And I think that you could argue that the ideology that China would like to pursue, which includes a sort of welfareist developmental authoritarianism, is one that actually in some ways, if implemented, would lead to all sorts of changes in terms of the world economic um, order. Hence my idea of an unstated uh, revolution. But even now, I think the fact of the Cultural Revolution still being a taboo phrase in China and the general unfashionability of revolution as a phrase really since the 1980s and the late Cold War in the wider world means that we're going to have to hold our breath for a long time to actually ever hear the term uh, being uh, used. I think we also have to acknowledge that China's current political project is a work in progress, is changing annually for sure, if not monthly or indeed sometimes daily. And that I think also explains its rampant inconsistency, a project which is so protean, which is in constant motion, I think is unlikely ever to be entirely internally consistent. And it's not as if you know, the American project in the world is always entirely consistent either. I think we also um, have to um, acknowledge that this has created some of the ambiguities that political science has produced in dealing with the project, although my wonderful colleagues at Oxford, Vivian Shu and Patricia Thornton in particular, have done a huge amount, I think, to shape it in a high, highly original form, in particular in their most recent book, To Govern China, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend. Indeed, if you have read it, I also highly recommend it. But think of some of the theoretical terms that we've seen around China recently and also around other states which are looking to put forward non-liberal democratic norms, hybrid state, competitive authoritarianism, fragmented authoritarianism. You know, these are useful terms, but they're essentially things that other people call a system. Nobody calls themselves a fragmented authoritarianism, or at least not in the pubs that I hang out in when pubs are actually open, which they're currently not in the United Kingdom. In other words, these are things that are not a description in themselves. They are a description of what a particular state is not. And in its own discourse, I think China is often actually much clearer about what it wants and more than that, what it's for, rather than what it is, what its purpose is. We've heard, again, sometimes with justification, the idea that China wants to make the world subject for authoritarianism. But that's also, I think, insufficient, because it's not just interested in any old type of authoritarianism, and there are many different types, as, as you know. It wants one, and this is, I think, where the difference comes, and I would love to have some discussion about this in a few minutes when we, we start the q and It wants, I think, a type of authoritarian structure that reflects back China's sense to itself of its political project as a moral project. Because there is a central contradiction, to use a good Marxist term, Madun, at the heart of the idea of China's proposition to the world. And that has to do very much with this week's developments in terms of sanctions, I must say. First of all, China has been at pains to argue that what it does within its own borders cannot be judged by others because China is special. It's too big and it's too culturally specific to be judged by the standards of other countries. With Chinese characteristics, a phrase that you hear in all sorts of contexts, dealing with why China is different from everywhere else. But Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping's speech from 2017 does not say that. It shows beyond doubt 
that China wants to be seen as a mentor or exemplar beyond its borders. So how to square that circle? How can China's system and conditions make it unique and yet it serve as an exemplar? And again, there are echoes there of the Nihonjingon debates in, in Japan in a way. Well, part of the answer may be the projection of the idea of China as a moral project in its own right, but an adaptation of that old imperial idea of the Daguo, the great state, to, to take uh, Tim Brooks' phrase again. Rather than being a state that should be imitated, today's China should serve instead as an inspiration. But outsiders also have to realize that inspiration is not the same thing as reproduction. In other words, you should admire us, you should learn from us, you, but you should not criticize us and you cannot be us and we do not want you to be us. And this is a project that takes on a question that is I think much bigger even than China and is in the balance right now. Because modernity in much of the world, certainly until the early 2000s, so about 20 years ago, was predicated on the idea that the liberal subject has to be central to fully exercised modernity. Without the liberal subject, it's only partial modernity. It's in some way incomplete. Democracy, human rights, freedoms were all defined by the liberal subject. And other systems were seen as morally deficient if they did not give prominence to that liberal subject as an object of moral inquiry, approval, and improvement. China's project, China's purpose, is to question and indeed undermine this belief. It is not the project of China, I think, to turn other countries into China. It is actually not about turning China into a Chinese empire, something that you hear quite often. It is about creating a political project that goes against the grain of a fundamental belief in the post-Cold War world, the idea that the foregrounding of the liberal subject is not a necessary part of any greater moral and indeed global order. And after all, to believe this, you don't have to be Chinese at all, nor do you even have to be a pure authoritarianism. You could be a Fidesz voter in Hungary. You could be an AKP official in Turkey. You don't even have to like China particularly. I don't think the PIS and the Law and Justice Party in Poland are actually particularly pro-Chinese, unlike their Hungarian counterparts in Fidesz. But their vision of community and moral project certainly does not place the liberal subject at its heart. And it draws its legitimacy, at least self-declaredly, from precisely that idea. Now, I said that China would never, unlike the Kyoto School of the 40s in Japan, have spoken about overcoming modernity. So perhaps we can call this project redefining modernity. It takes various systems of thought. We've mentioned Marxism, Leninism. We've mentioned reimagined Confucianism. All of those are there in a very syncretic sort of a way. And we've seen that recently with uh, Xi Jinping's visit to uh, Zhu Xi's um, uh, tomb uh, in uh, you know, the Neo Song Dynasty, Song Dynasty Neo Confucian. But they are not liberal ideas. And the conceptual problem with the construction of a non-liberal moral order of the sort that if, if, sorry, the conceptual problem that exists with the construction of a non-liberal moral order of the sort I'm describing is that that sort of order, as we are discovering here and now, finds it immensely difficult to deal with any sort of challenge. I think this is one reason that the specific Xinjiang issue, which has caused so much controversy this week, has become so hard for China to deal with. And these will be my last thoughts, but I will leave them, I hope, as a starting point into Arunav's comments and the, um, uh, the wider discussion. 
Because as I come to an end and I think about what's happening in terms of China and its presentation in the world and why it has found the Xinjiang issue so difficult to incorporate into the way that it speaks to the world and it's become so confrontational, I sometimes think of the similarities and differences with the last global power that sought moral as well as power realist, sorry, as well as realist power driven uh, leadership in the world. And that is, of course, the United States after 1945. And the United States, too, in that earlier era, the domestic nightmare of race and racial discrimination and the consequences that come from that, including gross abuse of human rights. That was the counterexample. That was the reason that people could throw people could throw back in America's face in the 40s and the 50s and the early 60s and say, we cannot accept your story of freedom wholesale because of what you do at home. White Americans at that time argued strenuously for the morality of the American project and argued that race was in some sense exceptional, that it was irrelevant, that it shouldn't be brought on. You see here on the left-hand side of the slide, I've given you the very important conservative thinker, William F. Buckley, who made exactly this case. Yet the external pressure from the world ultimately did force America to confront its inconsistency on race at home, in large part because of the domestic civil rights movement, so Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and others, uh, which has no direct equivalent really in, in China at the moment, but also shaped by pressure from abroad, not least from China, American elites, people like Buckley, did not welcome criticism from abroad on race. Barry Goldwater was another one in this category at that time. Uh, so um, events like the invitation to the Black Panthers by Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai in the 60s and 70s were seen as a real provocation. And here you see on the top uh, right-hand corner, Zhou Enlai meeting Huey P. Newton, one of my favorite historical uh, uh, pictures of the, of the era. But America did come to understand that the country's standing in the world, it's beacon status could not in the end be compatible with legal racial discrimination on its own soil, even if um, it remains uh, a fact in, uh, in practice to this, this day in many circumstances. And today's China, as we know, sees the disparity and exploits it. Even today, when they issue, for instance, statements about the horrific killing of George Floyd, and that's been something that Chinese foreign ministries on a very official basis have said over and over again on their Twitter feeds. But the implication then has to go both ways. If America is to be criticized for speaking about human rights globally, while we see abuses at home from its police force, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing for anyone to criticize regardless of where they live, but then China cannot really criticize America on race, but refuse to acknowledge any crisis at home. It's William F. Buckley's will eventually have to be shamed out of this by the equivalent of its James Baldwin's. And James Baldwin, of course, famously called Buckley out on this. And eventually, to his great credit, at the end of his life, Buckley said that he had been wrong about civil rights and um, he had uh, he changed his mind. I do not know how these will work out, these uh, debates. But I do think that if China wishes to define its confident rise as a moral project, and I do think that is what China is trying to do, then a moral project that has no self-reflexivity and which responds to questioning, not with debate, but with rage, is not one that is going to be robust enough to last. It is too fragile. And after all, if there's one value that is profoundly Confucian, it is the ability to learn, to reflect, and to revise your views over time. The inability to take criticism, and Confucius and his disciples took it from everywhere, uh, from all sides, internally and externally, well, that, is something we still see too little of in today's 
Beijing. Let me end by thanking my hosts, my commentators today, in particular, Arunav Ghosh, who I know is going to give us some wonderful comments in a moment, but thank you also to Anivestad and Lidia in previous weeks, and to all of you who've tuned in from around the world. I do want to end today by repeating how important I think these three factors are in creating what's distinct about East Asia in its own imagination and in ours over the past century. And I'll finish with a comment that I heard this morning, actually, on BBC Radio, a show called Start the Week, which you can hear online from anywhere. And the speaker was the chair of the British House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, the MP Tom Tugendhat, who actually happens, as it happens, just been sanctioned also by the Chinese government. But he was talking about um, Africa. He's a very original thinker on foreign policy, also a fluent Arabic speaker. And Tugendhat spoke about Africa. He says, in the West, we get Africa wrong. We think about it as a place of famines, of coups, of corruption, when in fact, it's actually a place that's forging ahead in terms of business and the use of tech. He talked about Kenya as a pioneer in cashless e-payments. And yet in the West, foolishly, I think in his view and certainly in mine, we don't associate Africa with being at the cutting edge of the new order. And instead we turn over over and over again to East Asia. Why do we do that? Well, I'd say in the end it is because distinctly, uniquely, that region has managed to define itself as being at the cutting edge when it comes to newness. It has made creative use of emotion and above all, it has defined itself, as few countries other than the United States have managed to do, as having a sense of purpose. And if we're under, to understand China's project in the world today, and for the next decade, and beyond, we will need to understand those terms, newness, emotion, and purpose, and how they weave together in the next 10 years and beyond, frankly, much better than we have done in the past 100 years. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you very much for your company during these lectures. It's been a privilege to give them. And could I hand over to my wonderful commentator for today, Professor Aronov Ghosh of Harvard University. Aronov, over to you. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Rana, for a, for a fantastic lecture. Uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to, to listen to, to, not just today, but to, to the previous two lectures as well. I've learned uh, a great deal, uh, and I've also found them to be extremely, extremely generative. Uh, I also want to thank very quickly, thank you and, and, and the, the, the folks at the Fairbank Center, Professor uh, Winnie Yip, uh, Professor Michael Sony, Dan Murphy, Mark Grady for uh, this invitation to, to comment uh, today. And I also want to echo uh, your words as well as the words of, of Professor Winnie Yip in support of Professor Joe, uh, Joe Smith-Finley, but also uh, a range of other colleagues who have been sanctioned in, in Europe and the UK. Um, as you noted, these latest trends are deeply distressing, um, but they are, uh, I, I fear, they are also a piece uh, of a piece with developments uh, that have been going on within the PRC for some time now. And I think we can see them in many other countries as well. So I think the problem is, is, is really going to grow in, in magnitude in the, in the days, weeks and months to come. So uh, I'm conscious of the time. I, I anticipate we will get a lot of questions. We already have a few questions that have come in. So I'm going to operate on the, uh, the principle that brevity is the soul of a good discussant and try and stay, stay as brief as possible. I have three broad comments or sets of questions that I'd like to sort of uh, uh, put forward. They're prompted by today's lecture, but they're also in many cases inspired by the first two Rashaw lectures that you've delivered over the past uh, three weeks. So let me let me dive right in and try and get through them as quickly as possible because it'd be great to also hear, hear some of your reflections and response to them. So, so the first sort of big umbrella question that I have, uh, oh, and I should, uh, as, as uh, to, to preface my comments, I should say also that I'm going to try and think as broadly as possible, sort of, uh, uh, not just keeping, you know, not just with China in mind, but more broadly about the kinds of questions your talks have raised. 
So the big, the first big umbrella question sort of uh, is what, what are large and powerful states for in general? Or put slightly differently, what are large and powerful states good for? Uh, and uh, I think there are at least a few different ways in which we can begin to think about this. Uh, there are first, for instance, uh, the stories that states tell themselves and then subsequently propagate to others, as you've been pointing out. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is that since the Industrial Revolution, uh, we have seen large states actually become globally powerful empires. That's sort of one thing that the Industrial Revolution really uh, facilitated. You had Britain, but then, of course, subsequently the U.S. as well. And perhaps we could argue for a shorter period, the Soviet Union also. Uh, and by, by this, I really mean uh, uh, states that have the power, that have the power uh, to, to project beyond their own borders. Right, uh, and, and to do so consistently. Other states, again, as you mentioned, have tried, but have been relatively less successful, a range of, uh, of European states, and then of course the nation state of exception that you mentioned, Japan. Uh, uh, and I think uh, what you have highlighted in some ways is that the nature of these polities matters because their dominance dictates larger global and then political, uh, global political and economic norms. Uh, you know, one need only consider the, the, the if we're permitted to do some counterfactual history, uh, you know, what if World War II had been won by someone else uh, and, uh, and, and uh, what, what would the world look like then? Um, but beyond the, this first sort of level, uh, just as significantly, I think uh, it's useful to consider the ways in which other countries perceive a big country, uh, whether in a, in a regional context or in a truly global context. And I think here you can see sort of a different set of uh, responses that are often elicited. Uh, there is fear and concern. Uh, much like there is in the U.S. right now about the rise of China. Uh, but there's also fear and concern uh, from the, the immediate neighborhood. And this, again, is a good example where you see PRC actions in the South China Sea along its, its territorial borders have elicited a great amount of concern amongst uh, its neighbors. Uh, but there's also cynical opportunism amongst many of these smaller countries at times, which are very happy to play off two, three larger countries against each other for sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term gain. Uh, and then the third, and this is again something that you've highlighted, is, is a genuine sense of admiration and inspiration. There are things that uh, other countries at times see as worth emulating, even if, as you ended by saying that China doesn't want to see emulation, but it wants to see respect. But I think there is something that can be very attractive uh, and, 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 and generate a desire to, to emulate. So that's the second. The third, the third level, I think, uh, is, is to sort of think about phenomena, the, the, those instances where purposes have been rejected. Uh, so you mentioned Mao's three worlds theory. Uh, you also talked about the Cultural Revolution. And these were sort of visions and, and purposes that were quite proactively rejected after a certain point in, in time. Um, and of course, the Cultural Revolution, um, you mentioned Julia Lovell's book, is I think a fantastic example of this because of the actual impact it had well beyond its borders. So there was a narrative domestic, domestically propagated, but then uh, you know whether you're looking at, at actors in Africa, actors in India and Latin America, uh, and indeed the United States, they were deeply inspired by what was going on in the Cultural Revolution. So what then do we make of purposes that have been set aside, as it were, or relatedly purposes that have been willfully forgotten? Uh, and where do they sort of fit in in this construction? So in some ways, the, the challenge is how, to, how do we think about these registers together? And I think your talk today, indeed the, the, the entire lecture series, I think, uh, offers us a fantastic way to grapple uh, uh, with, with these kinds of questions. Uh, and in this regard, I found particularly evocative uh, your, your tracing the shifts in Jiang Tingfu's thought from you know, his initial commitments to Marxism, uh, then to some form of um, uh, authoritarianism before eventually then settling upon, upon li liberal democratic values uh, as uh, by the end of the second world war as being sort of the, 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 the best way forward. And this focus on shifts 
in perspective over time, sort of on, if you will, the temporality of purpose itself, uh, is I think the second broad point I want to bring up because I think it's quite fascinating to try and think about the importance of time and moments in time. Um, it's also in some ways prompted by the case you make for thinking of China both as an undeclared or unstated revolutionary state, but also in its mode of, of offering a different kind of modernity, a reform, uh, reforms modernity itself. So when does purpose happen? Or put differently, when is a purpose found? Uh, here, of course, I'm thinking again explicitly of purposes that are transborder, right? So extra border, not, not domestic purpose, because we can argue most nation states and most societies uh, do come up with purposes that are often, you know, confined within their borders, or at, at least along their borders, if not more so. And indeed, we can think of 20th century Chinese history in, you know, in this uh, vein as well, uh, a search for unity, for sovereignty, uh, stability, development. These have all animated a, a range of Chinese thinkers as well. But again, if we think in a transborder international sense, uh, I think we can locate at least three registers uh, that are, that are uh, worth reflecting on. The first is uh, what event is crucial to forming a narrative about that purpose? Uh, and here your lectures, as well as your recent publications, your, your two most recent books, I think make a compelling case for China's participation in World War II and how that participation has been understood anew in recent years uh, as, as being sort of the event that, that is important. Uh, and it was actually very interesting therefore also hear Jiang Tingfu as someone in that moment also offering reflections that can become quite powerful. Uh, second, uh, so if the first is what event is crucial, then the second is when does that assessment take place? And here again, you, you know, you've, 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 uh, in your works you've offered and in the lectures you've offered sort of the suggestion that it begins really in the early 1980s, but what we're witnessing now is a particular articulation of that reassessment. So both what is being reassessed and when. And of course, at the third level, when does that purpose become a part of international discourse, whether as a self-reflexively stated position, and you, you, I think, quite compellingly said that we won't see that perhaps as clearly made, uh, but to consider when perhaps that might be done, or as an object of critique. And there, I think there is actually a lot more that's already going on. That is, as an object of critique, we're seeing a lot that is being discussed. So to, to indicate why I think this, this question and, and sort of parsing it in these three ways is, is interesting, uh, I think it might be useful to consider one or two other examples. So you've offered a fantastic example of, of, of course, Japan and the ways in which we can trace some of these, uh, this evolution in, in Japanese history. Uh, in the interest of time, maybe I'll just mention one, uh, which is, of course, uh, the, 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 the empire I guess, in, in, from the early modern period, at least, the empire par excellence, the British Empire, uh, and its sort of self-proclaimed uh, purpose of shouldering the white man's burden of bringing civilization to native peoples. But of course, empire was not the original conception, at least it's certainly not the conception in, in, the, in the Indian subcontinent, uh, but it's, it was a longer processes through which the East India Company got basically tangled in a variety of, of engagements and then began to participate in extremely excessive behavior that led to uh, a scandal, if you will, a major impeachment trial where Warren Hastings was, uh, was impeached by, by Edmund Burke. And I'm, I'm referring, of course, to Nick Dirks' fantastic book, Scandal of Empire here, where Dirks really shows that uh, it was this trial that ironically made Britons comfortable with the idea that their empire was a morally good thing. So the scandals that had been committed earlier by East India Company officials had to be addressed. And the way to address them was by embracing empire. So now we would actually bring civilization. We would we would we would right the, the wrongs as it were. Uh, but of course, uh, what it did is, of course, in the process, wiped clean the excesses of the East India Company, but also then created the grounds for justifying future exploitation. Right. 
So, so this you know links to sort of the argument you're making about a moral purpose that is so central to uh, to these kinds of formations. I think you can make a similar case with with the United States and and Stephen Wertheim's new book. I think is particularly interesting in this regard about when American leaders became comfortable with the idea of becoming a global power, and at what point does this does the the burden of its self-avowed uh, purpose of spreading freedom and democracy when does that get sort of appropriated? I think again, it's not it's not the same point. I think, but I won't in the interest of time. I won't I won't belabor that. But the larger point, of course, is that in, in most of these instances, the purpose, as you have, I think, so, so, so clearly said, always a moral project, uh, is in some ways applied ex post facto. It's after the fact uh, of, of actual exercise of power, expansion of power. Uh, and it, in each case, it is used to justify, sometimes brush over excesses in pursuit of that hard power, economic power, political power, and so on. Uh, this can be colonial exploitation. It can be regime change, invasion, uh, what have you. So the moral project in some ways provides a convenient cover for, you could say, the semi side of empire, the real side of empire. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge uh, that these fictions, if we take them as entirely fictions, uh, uh, have just enough truth within them also uh, to elicit wider support or to, to, to be attractive at some level. What's interesting, and perhaps this is where, um, you know, the argument that China, your argument that there's something to taking China as a nation state of exception, is 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 really very interesting is that uh, in, in the British case and the American case and, and one could argue also in, in the Soviet case there was no immediate prior state that could form a model or offer a kind of lineage uh, you know so of course both the British and the Americans do harken back to classical antiquity and you know sort of sort of enlightenment uh, uh, discussions about about the, the ancient past but but they don't have it you know to use uh, as you did Tim Brooks characterization they don't have a tagu concept that they can immediately draw upon. And I think that's that's actually uh, is a very interesting way to think about then uh, this question of time and what role it plays in, in when, what and when becomes articulated as purpose. Uh, so, so uh, and, and the, the final thing about time, I think is also, I think which you, which you suggested, which is very interesting is that whether we are at too early a stage to really be able to tell where are things going to go. And I'll, I'll, I'll end with that, with sort of where that sort of uh, this question of being in flux leads us. So you've offered, uh, I think, a, a range of very interesting and provocative ways to think about what the purpose might be. You've talked about China as a new nation state of exception, an undeclared revolutionary state, uh, you know, the idea of Taguo from, uh, from Tim Brooks' work, uh, illiberal development, which you've also found echoes in, in Jiang Pingfu's work. Uh, and then, of course, I think uh, the way you ended most provocatively with, with sort of redefining uh, uh, modernity sort of and, and taking on this idea of the liberal subject as being something that does not have to be central to any kind of future that we uh, that we imagine. But so uh, sort of building on this idea of work in progress, I think a lot of my comments and I think uh, a lot of the discussion in some ways, there is an implicit expectation. Uh, and perhaps this is an expectation most acutely felt. Uh, by uh, the leaders and elite in China itself is that the PRC will indeed occupy a dominant place in the decades to come in the global economy and global politics and so on. But there are, of course, several challenges that have been well recorded and, 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 and studied uh, or well documented. And of course, even though the, the, the Chinese state has, has invested a significant amount of energy, significant amount of treasure, if you will, in meeting these challenges, it remains very un it remains quite unclear whether these challenges will be met or resolved. So, of course, I'm thinking of things that to a China Watcher audience should be quite quite familiar. Questions like demography and demographic challenges, the fact that there's going to be massive massive aging in the Chinese population over the coming decade or two, uh, 
climate change, environmental degradation, uh, and these approaches to linguistic, religious, cultural diversity that you, I think, signal to? How do you deal with dissent and disagreement, whether internal or, or uh, from abroad? And then this question of inequality in some ways, which is, uh, and I mean this again, not just internationally, but domestically, the extreme sort of uh, uh, concentration of wealth within China amongst a smaller and smaller number of, of, of Chinese citizens. So one could argue that many of these are essentially uh, the chickens of capitalism uh, and its sort of emphasis on growth and profit as secular goods. Uh, these are the chickens of capitalism coming home to roost in some ways, because many of these problems, of course, are not just uh, endemic to, to the PRC. Uh, but perhaps I think to add to, to the, the various uh, layers that you've offered, it is in tackling these problems uh, and to harken back to the question of things being in flux, uh, tackle them successfully or unsuccessfully, that a, a sense of purpose might also emerge. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't just be the negation of a liberal subject, but a, a genuine ability to offer solutions that would then transcend the borders of the PRC itself. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you once again uh, for a fantastic sequence of lectures. Uh, it's been an absolute delight to, to listen to them. I've learned a lot and I, I hope as is clear, uh, it's been fantastic to think with them too. Uh, it's been tremendously gen generative. So I don't know if you wanna offer a few quick responses and then we can open the floor up. Uh, there are a lot of questions. I'll give a very brief response, Arunab, because I'm aware there are questions, and of course, uh, I've, uh, I, I want to make sure we get a few of them in before we, we, we have to close down uh, in a few minutes. I think, apart from thanking you for an incredibly rich set of comments, so if, if you saw the kind of the, uh, the my, my Zoom shaking, it's because I was tapping away on the laptop to try and recall all this. I hope I might be able to get them, get, get some more thoughts from you later, later on in, in, in a written form. But um, I think the one thing I take from it, where actually I'm going to have to clearly revise what I had to, to say, well, many things, I think, but... You, I think, have made me think that actually simply dismissing the idea of empire as a way of thinking about this isn't going to be enough. And I think returning to that and seeing where it fits and where it doesn't is the particular kind of project that I think I'd next take up from that very, very cogent set of comments that you made. I won't respond at all length now because we want to get a few more thoughts in, but thank you for a really comprehensive and useful set of comments uh, of the lecture. It really was very, very much appreciated. Um, and I'll throw back to you, sort of in your role as chair. Did you want to maybe collect a couple of things and put them together so that we have- Yeah, I think that would make more sense. We have about sure. 11, 12 minutes, but we can probably go over by a few minutes, but not much yeah, more. Yeah, sure. So okay. I'm trying to kind of sure. glance through and see if we can find some uh, consistent, uh, or, you know, uh, thematically sure. some questions together. So. That's great. So do you want to pick what we do or shall I? So let me, let's, uh, let's start with, uh, well, let's start with this question from Asaf uh, Ali Begovich. I don't know if you can see it. I'll read it out for everyone. Uh, to what extent and how the sense of being a responsible great power, uh, a Futsar and Dagwa, uh, influences China's strategic purpose? How does it structure China's global behavior? So maybe as you do that, I'll try and collect other questions. So maybe the first one you can take out by itself, if you don't mind. No, absolutely. Um, I think that actually you can see, and well, thanks very much, uh, Asaf, for a great question. Um, I think this idea of Futsar and the Dagwa, which of course emerges actually as part of the discourse maybe about 15 years ago, uh, it's a term that you hear slightly less now, but it comes off the back of some of the things that I think Robert Zellick and others have put forward into the idea of how China was going to be incorporated into the liberal order rather than necessarily being a challenger uh, to it. Um, I would say that the line about responsibility actually fits quite well into this idea because it suggests again that China being in the world has again this sort of moral freight to it, this idea that it's there to actually serve a purpose beyond the expansion of its own, uh, its own power. What I think is important as, as part of that 
is again to sort of, with this idea of perhaps this nation state of exception um, thought, that China's own conception of what being a responsible great power is may not accord with the liberal idea of that. And the difficulty I think we have, I assume the vast majority of people you know, in this discussion are liberals, and I certainly would call myself one, is that because we tend to delegitimize non-liberal alternatives, for, often for very good reason, seeing China's alternative view of what its responsibility is as being purely instrumental and power maximizing, while I think that is a strong element of it, may not be enough. And just to give one thought about an interesting book, and you know, I say that uh, with, with no disrespect to book, which I find incredibly interesting and with, with I disagree much of it quite strongly is Daniel Bell's recent book uh, with Pei Wang, um, Just Hierarchy. And I've discussed this with, with Daniel too. He's a very interesting thinker. You know, he goes very explicitly for the idea that actually a responsible international order involves states saying that we're not all equal. And actually some are weaker, some are stronger, some have more right to dominate, others do not. And he gives his own homeland of Canada as an example of one that has to go down the hierarchy and China as one of the ones that's near the top. Now, I think that's problematic for a whole variety of reasons, but I understand it as in its own terms, conceptually consistent. And that I think is one of the barriers that we need to leap across slightly when thinking about what responsible great power might actually mean. Great, thank you. Uh, I have, there's a, two other questions that I think sort of speak, that, that, are, that are in, in interesting ways related to each other. So I'll just, I'll read them out, but I'll let you know. I'm thinking of Peter Frankopan's question and Frederica Perlanti's question. So Peter asks, uh, he says, great talk. Thank you, Rana. You mentioned at the end, uh, China responding with rage and not with engagement, with the substance of arguments. Are such responses misguided and miscalculations? And if so, how are they to be best understood? And I think implicit in, him, in, in the question is, is the second question that I thought I'd toss in there as well, which speaks about generational changes. So to, this is Frederica Ferlanti's question. To what extent is this sense of purpose a generational question? In other words, the focus and search for she's China being recognized globally as a moral entity is it left behind by the post-1949 Maoist era, which with the generational turnover will give way to a different kind of identity and a place in the world? So I guess think about anger also the role that that plays in, in, in debate and discussion, whether it's a young, it's a young, young man's problem, a young woman's problem. <laughs> quite, 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 quite so, and nice to put. Uh, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Federico. Two, two great questions there. I think in terms of the thrust of Peter's question about sort of the, the responses and how China's sort of engaging or, or failing to engage with this, I think that there's a sort of Achilles heel, if one could use a sort of Greek metaphor for a Chinese event that is emerging here, which is that within its own borders, and when it was essentially an inward looking state, or at least a state that didn't look to make a great splash on the world stage. So let's say the 1980s, 1990s, although we might all, I hope we would as liberals, condemn human rights abuses, et cetera, within China, we couldn't really claim that China was uh, a, clay, a state that was going around the rest of the world telling everyone else how to live. And they made this very much part of the shtick. We don't tell you what to do, you don't tell us what to do. The problem is that China has now got itself into a situation where it is simultaneously very strongly telling other people what to do without actually necessarily acknowledging that fact always. But sometimes as in the speech by Xi Jinping, it's very explicitly about we're going to you know, put forth this example for others. But then saying there are areas which are off limits in, in terms of, uh, of, of that discussion. That I think is not sustainable because if one wants to go back to the central idea, and I do want to, to, to keep it in there of, of China projecting its own um, arguments as a moral project in their own right, morality and ethics by definition are the subjects of debate and they are the other subjects of engagement. And 
As with so many other things, I think a mistake that Beijing makes, and I think it is a mistake, is to think that these can be set down in a purely top-down sort of a way, a bit like the version of the mass line. I mean, you know, there's a very clearly sort of Marxist, Leninist, Maoist um, uh, take to it on the grounds that, you know, once some very abstruse and non-transparent debate has happened about an issue, that is the line and nobody else is going to be able to dispute it. Well, as I say, that would work to some extent internally if you are essentially talking about the redefinition of your own Daguo. But it does very little, I think, to actually present the idea that your Dagua has a sort of moral weight that can operate beyond boundaries. So that's the flaw in that particular argument, I think, and where I think it's likely to find itself tripping up. Federica's question about generational um, uh, difference. Um, I think this does make a difference. And actually, I'd link it back to economics, in a sense, because one of the reasons I brought up my little extracts from Jiang Tingfu, apart from the fact that I think he's a very interesting writer who should be better remembered, and also, as I said more than once, because of the Fairbank connection, which I thought was appropriate to this series, but that all aside, I think in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways, the project of self-actualization in the post-war, of China stepping on a global stage, trying to work out how it can get its own act together, but also use that to speak to issues of the moment. And in the 1940s, that issue was very much, how the hell are we gonna get rid of empires, which is still very much uh, a presence in the world and in Asia uh, at that point. But at its most basic, the problem was that China didn't have any money. So, you know, it was about to fall apart. Uh, so the weight with which it was able to push those arguments was clearly very restricted in certain ways. In some ways, there are distinct lines of commonality with today's arguments that China puts forward. The different being, difference being that China is more stable, it's certainly a lot richer, it has a much more embedded status in global society. And therefore the generation, which is probably the generations in the plural that really have come to it, you know, the Bashi and the Hoa. So I guess people after the 1980s really, who are going to come of age in a China which is broadly more predictable than it has been in any generation previously, are the ones who are going to have to engage with that particular message. So I think, to finish the thought, the question is going to be, do they share what the elite would like them to share, mm -hmm. which is the idea that there is a moral project that China represents that can be projected out into the world. Because I have to say not every American traveling around you know, Europe in the 50s and 60s on a kind of you know, tour, on a tour bus necessarily thought of themselves as an agent of enlightenment values or democracy or anything else. They had better things to do at the time. I don't think it's necessarily the case that every Chinese student or tourist is going to be either. But I think there is no doubt that the project exists mm -hmm. and has weight behind it in a way that would have been harder to argue maybe 15, 20 years ago. Great, fantastic, thank you. And in some ways it harkens to the role of sort of the ways in which education, something you ever talked about also, uh, has 10 textbooks have been changed over time. Uh, there, there are a couple of questions that are, I think, related to uh, to what degree is, is the Chinese case exceptional or you know an outlier. So I'm thinking of Nicholas Bradbury's question here and the question from Bharat Sharma. So I'll read each out again. Uh, and they're different, but they, I think, deal with this, this question of exceptionalism. Sure. So maybe yeah. you can take them together. So Bharat, Bharat Sharma asks, globally, what is different about China in terms of its need to reflect back itself on the world? In other words, do not political projects around the world wish to reflect back their own ideas onto the world? Is that need itself distinctly Chinese? Uh, and then uh, Nicholas Bradbury asks, uh, any thoughts on the world, unusually, having a great power that is poorer in GDP per capita terms, not uh, national, you know, not, not, not GDP uh, PPP terms, than smaller countries rather than richer. So, and a, a um, different way of thinking about being, being exceptional. 
Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, on the latter point first, if I, if I may briefly, which is um, uh, Nicholas Bradbury. Nick, thank you for that point. Um, uh, well, first of all, I think the Soviet Union actually had per capita GDP that was pretty low. I mean, it was the old, was it Henry Kissinger or someone who said it was upper volta with rockets, which was a bit unfair. But nonetheless, you know, it was never a rich place. And that was part of the reason that the, the place fell apart in the uh, in the end. But I take the wider point. It is extraordinary that a country that's essentially a middle income country in terms of being about $10,000 per annum uh, per capita GDP is essentially now being, you know, rising up as the kind of global superpower in that in that sense. And I think that that is relatively um, unusual. But again, as with many other things, uh, that GDP is rising quite fast as well. And of course, that's the aim behind the Xiao Kang idea, the moderately prosperous society that the party wishes to put forward within the next decade or, uh, or two. So even that disparity may, may um, uh, um, shrink, if not necessarily disappear. Uh, in terms of Parachama's uh, question, uh, it's a great idea, this idea about reflecting back on its, um, itself. I don't think it is in any sense distinctly Chinese, the idea to create some political project in the world, a moral project too, that reflects back on yourself. The difference is that very, very few entities are in a position to do it, and even fewer of them want to. So, you know, to use the contrast that people always put forward, and Arunav is much more expert in this than I am, but, you know, India also has a huge population. It has a, you know, a strong sense of itself. It has, uh, you know, strong cultural presence abroad, all this sort of thing. It, you know, it doesn't have a military like China's, but it has plenty of, you know, hard power if it wants to use it. It doesn't. China, India, it seems to me, despite occasional protests in the other direction, has no real interest in creating a sort of political and morally inflected project of Indianness that has any significance beyond the borders of India itself. It has security issues, which are significantly different from, from all of that. And it wants to make sure that it doesn't find itself disadvantaged um, economically speaking. But the idea that the Indian project and the Chinese project are in some ways comparable in the present day, I think is you know, not something that I, I can consecutively see. Whereas the idea that the American project and the Chinese project are in some way comparable, I think does in fact, uh, Make uh, makes sense. So that's the difference that I'd see there. Um, um, could I sneak in one answer to a quick question uh, as well? I see that Sean Quirk is asking, isn't it disingenuous to say that China signed the UN Charter in 1945 and it was the ROC yeah, and non-existent PRC? Oh, okay, well, you're going to have that. Okay, well, I, I, would, I, would, I just feel that I really wanted to answer it. So well, hang on, let me, let me read it out again. Let me read it out in that case, great. People, I, people yeah. in the audience can hear it too. There's actually two questions yeah. that speak to Taiwan in different ways or ROC in different okay, ways. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah, feel free, please. I'll throw, throw it back uh, to you. So the first one is Sean Quirk who says, isn't it a bit disingenuous to say China, in quotes, signed the UN Charter in 1945 when it was the ROC and not the then non-existent PRC that signed it? Do you think the CCP, for example, leaders like Wang Yi, generally view Nationalist Party ROC representatives as their predecessors in, again, China's in quotes, signing of the UN Charter? I'm going to read the other question also so that people have, have it in, in mind. This is from, from uh, Lian Ma. Uh, who says, I would like to ask what role the Taiwan issue plays in the overall purpose of China as it projects influence on the world stage. We are at time, so we'll, we'll take these two questions and end with that. But let's go ahead. Yeah, no, I think I'll answer, answer very briefly. The brief answer to Sean is that, yes, it is entirely, thank you, great, great question, Sean. Um, first of all, the longer answer is in chapter six of my new book, China's Good War, which is exactly about the question of how the PRC today 
as I say, is cashing a check that was written by the Guomindang back in the 1940s. So it's entirely disingenuous, but Wang Yi and Xi Jinping and others used the nationalist, um, oh, thank you very much, Arunal, great. Thank, thank you for having it handy there, very good prop. Um, when it's politically useful for them to do so, as it does in this case. It is worth noting that the UN delegation did contain one communist, uh, Dong Biwu, who was very much part of the delegation, but it was dominated by the Guomindang at that, uh, that time. So yes, entirely disingenuous, but it is a disingenuousness that is you know, exploited very strongly by today's uh, PR, PRC. And the Taiwan issue, perhaps that's a good one to, to end with in a sense without giving any statement here about the merits or otherwise of the Taiwan political issue, I do think that Taiwan, in a sense, provides a real challenge to China in the way to some extent that Hong Kong has done, because actually a large part of the challenge that both Hong Kong and Taiwan make to the PRC's discourse is not just political. It is also about a type of morality. It is about the idea that democratic self-actualization can be um, a, a moral good in its own right. And essentially, although it's rarely stated this way, the Chinese case has to be our national aim of reuniting the territory is more important than any of the moral imperatives that you in Taiwan choose to put forward as reasons why you feel angry or uncomfortable or unwilling to share this particular project. And I've said, actually, I have a, a piece in such a morning post online about why can't China find a language to speak to Taiwan that makes reunification attractive? And the large part, I think that that is in the end, the, one of the biggest challenges. If China's political project could find a way to define reunification in terms in anything else than we want this and therefore you're going to have to take it, which obviously is a power argument rather than a moral argument, they might make a better case in terms of being able to make a case for the moral argument as a whole that they're uh, they're putting forward. But so far, there is little sign that they have managed to do that. So, you know, that is a political project and a challenge perhaps for the next uh, period since uh, it will be a lot more satisfactory than using all the missiles and things that seem to be building up on the other side of the, the strait, which I think we can all agree would not be a happy solution in any circumstances. Great, thank you so much. Uh, we are past time, so I think we will have to, to call the session to close. So my apologies to those people who had questions and we did not uh, we did not get to them, but uh, I hope those of uh, you who are still with us please join me in in thanking Rana uh, for a fantastic series of lectures. Uh, uh, it's been it's been tremendous, so much to learn and so much to think about and through. So thank you again, and uh, bye bye. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today and last few weeks, and thank you for everyone, including Arunav and the Fairbank team. Thank you all very much indeed. Good night from Oxford. <laughs>